Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football recruiting and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxie, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. Step into the new year in style. If you haven't made the move already, you really need to experience the difference a quality sock makes. Go to DeadSoxy.com and enter the code LUCKY at checkout to receive 25% off all orders, including sale items. As they continue to grow, Dead Soxy wants to extend a special thank you for the continued support of the Inside Indie Sports community. The folks at Dead Soxy are constantly striving to improve their quality, relationships, and customer experiences. I know they spoiled me with a gift box of socks over the holidays, and hopefully you've spoiled yourself with some Dead Soxy socks. But even if you haven't, we still have an opportunity for you to get some at a discounted rate. Remember to enter promo code LUCKY at checkout for 25% off all orders, and Happy New Year from Dead Soxy. Before we get to our interview with Mike Golick Jr., I wanted to note that this podcast interview was recorded prior to Sam Hartman announcing his commitment to Notre Dame. So we did ask Mike uh, a little bit about Sam Hartman, and he did share his, his thoughts there. But just know going into the interview that it's not spoken in, in, in ways of something that has happened yet because it hadn't happened at the time of the recording. The Gator Bowl was a greater bowl, and that right there is the cheesiest way that I could start the 2023 year on the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. Notre Dame's 45-38 to 38 victory over South Carolina was an unrelenting thrill ride and an exhilarating way to end a bit of a roller coaster season for the Irish. For one last recap of the game and the season, we invited the Golick family's foremost Taylor Swift enthusiast back onto the podcast. Mike Golick Jr. is a former Notre Dame offensive lineman current host of the Gojo podcast, and one of our most frequent guests on the Inside Indy Sports podcast. Mike, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you having me, guys. Now the countdown to the next most important date of my life begins March 24th when I see Taylor Swift in Las Vegas. <laughs> All right. Wow. That sounds, sounds like a good time. I'm sure Eric's jealous. Hey, Mike, Okay, before we get into any football questions. <laughs> there we go. What did you think when you asked Jack Swarbrick on when you and Mike senior were talking to him on your podcast, when he said pink should be the next entertainer to, to grace Notre Dame stadium, what went through your mind? Uh, stunned. You know what? Shame <laughs> on me for doubting the range of Jack Swarbrick. Again, the only man in the country that's got to be an AD and a conference commissioner when it comes to all the big decisions he makes. Of course, he would understand a great entertainer when he sees one. And the thought of him offering up the acrobatics of her essentially doing a zip line from the top of the library into the stadium was incredible foresight. And it's why he's a thought leader in the industry. Okay. <laughs> I, I had to explain Pink's uh, aerial uh, feats to, to Eric. He did not understand that. Oh, it's it's incredible, dude. It's Because, again, it's not just like normal trapeze stuff. It's where you're in the cloth and there's so much strength that goes along with that. Okay. Like somewhere along the way, Pink became a dynamic athlete in addition to a powerful singer. It's truly <laughs> the melding that stadium deserves. Okay. Now that we got the most important thing out of the way, now we can talk football. <laughs> Perfect. So, so, Mike, going back to the Gator Bowl, what was, I guess, just to start our conversation about the, what was maybe your favorite moment from the Gator Bowl? I, I mean, <laughs> too many to count in this one. I'll say th I'll I'll say this, and just because it was eerily similar to a play where another Notre Dame tight end scored uh, in recent memory, uh, the fourth and one touchdown pass uh, that in the NFL went to Brock Wright 
uh, of the Detroit Lions. And in this game, I believe went uh, – was it Holden Stays? Was that uh... – Mitchell Evans. Mitchell Evans, that's the one. one of those. Again, one of the tight ends we haven't heard from much this year because we've been yeah. throwing a one guy the whole time. <laughs> but, yeah, that fourth and one pass, it was basically the same exact play here. Created a couple of downfield routes and then snuck the tight end out the back door. Buckner hits him, and he's butt-necked open running into the end zone. And just, you know, really incredibly gutsy call at that moment in a game that had featured a bunch of back-and-forth stuff, a call I know Notre Dame fans – really were perplexed by with the pass down in the red zone that ended with a 99 yard pick uh, interception for a touchdown, but to stay with it, to have the faith in Tyler Buckner and those guys who again, didn't have a lot of reps in that big role of being the defined target in that spot to go and execute in that moment was incredible. Was there anything that surprised you that you came out? And, and again, there was so much that happened in that game. It was hard to include everything and so forth, but but elements of the game, either position groups or players who surprised you? I don't know, man. I mean, I I know it's the really like easy, obvious answer, but man, Tyler being able to come out and do this after being all season on the shelf the way he was. And I understand and God appreciate the young man for coming out and saying, hey, I didn't play up to my standard here. Those two interceptions and talked about those things. But listen, we saw Tyler Buckner early in the season, albeit against Ohio State's defense to start off and early in the year. Like it wasn't like they faced slouches, but there were still questions about what was he going to look like developing into a downfield passer, an overall quarterback after being used as a package guy in 2020 and 2021. And so for him to be doing, you know, rehab coming back from an injury during the season and not on the field and to be able to come out and have that kind of game in that kind of environment where you know listen with the opt-outs on the other side that you had from South Carolina it wasn't like you had a ton of tape on all of these guys either so there are so many of unknowns you're without your best offensive weapon all these things that factored into that for Tyler to have the game that he did I know Notre Dame's future at the quarterback position is still up in the air I know we're still waiting in the wings with the Sam Hartman news and everything associated with that and if Sam Hartman comes he should be the quarterback day one wouldn't even be a question in my mind wouldn't have to think about it but Tyler Buckner deserves a ton of credit for that performance that he provided there as a runner as a passer and just as a football player in the circumstances he came into this game in Mike, I, I want to circle back to that 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 late pick six. I know you're a, a vocal Tommy Reese supporter, and even <laughs> even uh, expressed as much on Twitter during the game. I, I generally agree with you more than the fire everybody at halftime mob. But can we admit that maybe that was an ill advised play call in that situation? Oh hell yeah! Like, listen, like <laughs> the the support of Tommy Reese is not to say that he is infallible or perfect. <laughs> like that's never been the the cause of this the cause of my tweets during that game was alcohol but <laughs> the cause of my defense is the understanding that more often than not Tommy is an incredible net good and an asset to an offense that was operating with its backup quarterback all year and really only one viable passing option and I think you saw within the body of this game there were still so many places where you walk into the game with a decided schematic advantage with him as a coordinator. Every once in a while, that will net you him pushing the ball in a spot where he shouldn't or him going after something like he did in that spot and putting Tyler in that situation down there where Tyler is the player is absolutely going to step up and say, I shouldn't have put the ball in harm's way. It was open there. And that's been the case sometimes with these calls. But there is something to knowing and just, hey, 
we've got an opportunity to here to get points, take them. Absolutely. Like Tommy would be the first one to tell you he's right. probably never called a perfect game. So yeah, absolutely. That was when we all looked at and went, Oh bleep, especially me watching that surrounded by hordes of South Carolina fans at that stadium. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering Mike, if you can kind of decode the offensive line play for us and how you feel both within this game and within the season, how they progressed. Yeah, so, I mean, seeing this one live, I haven't gone back and rewatched the game yet on tape, so I can't speak too much to how they performed specifically in this game. But what I will say overall is this was as, I think, clearly visual of a development you could see. Like, so often development in sports is really hard because it's minute. It's little things that you get better at over time that from an outside perspective for us just watching, not seeing day-to-day in practice, it's really, really tough because we don't always know what they're working on because I know what Harry's doing with them in practice every day, Coach Eastan, and because we saw where they started going back to last year to where they are now, it is incredibly evident how much this group improved. Obviously, Joe Alt going on to become part of all these All-American teams and, and do what he's done. Um, incredible development there. I thought Zeke got better and was playing his, some of his best football towards the end of the season. Certainly, Jared Patterson and Josh Lug can't say enough about what their leadership meant to this team. Jared Patterson, one of the toughest players that this program seen come through in a while. I thought also as the year went along, Jared, who last year, remember, we know played center for Notre Dame for the longest time, was talked about as a potential high draft pick in that regard and switch positions because coach Eastam wants to get the best five on the field. And I thought bar none, Jared Patterson played the best football of his career. Like I, I, by far, this was Jared's best season in an Irish uniform, as far as I can tell. And I think that is only stock up for his draft status to show he is viable along the interior three and absolutely benefited from that with Coach Eastan. Josh Lugs, a guy leadership-wise, maxed out his ability. And Blake Fisher, man, it is a really exciting future for that guy. Like, he has always been so big and powerful and explosive. But to watch all these guys, because I and I think I've said this with you guys before, like, watching coach he stand offensive lines the devils and the details and you can see them in places like how you pass off stunts how you punch and pass protection the things that are drilled over and over again every day and by the end of the season you saw joe and blake especially i look to them as young guys because as much as we know their names they're young players there's not a lot of football under these guys belts going into this year and so for them over time to get comfortable with their punch and to put that on display where you see extensions on extension on the perimeter. And yeah, it wasn't always perfect, especially for Blake at points in the season, because he is a guy who's so powerful. He can be like a home run hitter. That guy's a year away from being like a potential top 10 draft pick. If he keeps wow. up this trajectory, I, it, the physical ability is insane with him. Yeah. And so as he continues to develop his man body and get to that point, I, I Joe Alt reminds me a lot of Liam Eikenberg where everything is very tech. Like the two of them, even when you look at them blocking, they've got a lean that's really similar, but both of them really great in getting extension, getting defenders away from their body and pass protection here. They're rock solid. They might not blow you away. You know, the way when you see some of the blocks with Blake, he's launching people into the stratosphere. He is displaced. <laughs> like he moves guys that you have no earthly business being able to move in so many spots where in college football and the NFL, you don't see that he's able to do that one-on-one. -on -one. It's special. 
Joe might not be that powerful, but he is so clean technically, and he's so precise with where he's supposed to be. It's why he's an All-American. So knowing you've got those guys and Zeke as the foundation going into next year is such a huge positive. And they're now one year into Coach Eastand and knowing what he wants and what the expectation in the room. And so now that standard becomes internal again, which is when Notre Dame's offensive line was up and running and humming the first time under Coach Eastand, it was all about all right, Coach Eastan comes and sets a standard of what the Notre Dame offensive line is supposed to be, and then internally that takes over, and it's self-policing. It's everybody knowing this is what we're supposed to do in this situation on each and every play, and we will not allow anything less than that to be acceptable, not in any drill and certainly not in any game setting. Mike, Zeke Carell is someone that's interesting to me in that, I mean, I think he was – probably the weakest link in that offensive line, which, I mean, that's a great offensive line, so it's not like he was a terrible player. But I'm curious, the experience he gained this season, how much better can he be as a product of that and the guys he's played around? Oh, ton better. Like, I, I always look back now in, in retrospect on my time playing, and it's like, I started 17 games. That's not a lot. Like, especially to learn this position, and especially as late as I did, like, I had the experience of being an older player, and Zeke played a bunch more than I did early on in his career, going all the way back to the 2020 season, where I, I really thought he flashed against North Carolina. That was where I was first like, oh, this kid's big, can stay square, he's got some, he's got some stuff to him, but there's so much you learn about playing football only by doing in live reps, and for him to do it with those guys now as the full-time starter all season long this year, I think is going to be massive for his development, especially for him. I thought his biggest thing was playing with head up noses. That was really what gave him the most trouble when he was uncovered and work. He was a really good player. It was when you got guys directly over him and now you've got someone with hands in your chest at the beginning of every play, but now he's seen, all right, this is how that affects me in real-time speed, not working in the spring game or spring practice or anything like that. And so, yeah, to make the, to be able to make those year-over-year adjustments, another year in a college weight room to get stronger is huge. Mike, uh, it's going to be a fascinating spring because there are a lot of really good football players that want to be one of those two open spots. And not all of those guys are playing guard right now. Um, and Billy Shrouth is the hot rumor you know, the true freshman, I'm wondering, had, had you seen enough of them later in the season or or did you really just see them in August to, to be able to say, here's who maybe I think will contend? Uh, no, Honest, okay. honestly, wouldn't be able to give you a name. Okay. I'll tell you though, like the beautiful part is to your point, you brought it up. Not all of them are playing guard. Again, doesn't matter. Coach yeah. Stan's going to put the five best on the field. So that's the one exciting part about being in that room is yes, He's a tough guy to play for, expects a lot, going to grill you. But if you're willing to go to bat for it, he doesn't care what position you're listed yeah. at on the depth chart. He's going to find a way to get you on the field if you're deserving. Mike, I, I don't know how much I take away from the Gator Bowl in terms of like what next year looks like, mm -hmm. but I did. Th I, I found it fascinating sort of as a bookend when you look at the Fiesta Bowl from last season – as the starting point of where they sort of blew a lead and weren't able to hold on. And this one, they kind of came back and the, the defense I thought did a really good job in the second half against South Carolina. What, what did you see from how that defense maybe adjusted and um, sort of stuck with its game plan to sort of eventually limit South Carolina through some, through some tough spots there in the first half and maybe a little bit early in the second half. 
Yeah, I think it's a defense that at this point, just really sure identity, like really sure understanding of itself. Where again, you're down, you know, your school's all-time leader in sacks on that side and that you're able to understand, like this defense has always given up yards in bunches at times. Like it's a little bit light in the ass in the middle and because you're going to take chances, moving parts around as much as you do, using the linebackers as ad guys there, you know, especially with Marist and what he's presented as a pass rusher and, and how he can add in as that fourth guy. It does leave you vulnerable to some of the seams there, but I think it's, again, you talked about the confidence of having been there. I think for so many of these guys, the confidence of having been through situations and understanding, all right, if we give up a bunch of yards and points early, that's fine. We're going to make the requisite plays on the other side of this. We're going to find opportunities to affect the game. And once you go through and get through, you know, that initial opening script where give Shane and them credit, right? They're getting ready to move on to a different offensive coordinator. They're in between guys. They're cobbling it together. They came out with an opening script where they hit Notre Dame with what's hurt them a lot traditionally with this defensive coaching staff, Tempo. Went up speed on them, got this thing moving fast, and made it so that a Notre Dame defense that thrives on communication and chaos couldn't really get either one of those going. But they knew eventually, hey, they're going to have to settle in and play our game. And if we make a couple of splash plays, short them on first and second down, we're going to get opportunities to go out there and get after people. And they were able to find those, I, I think, in large part just because – You've been there before. This is a defensive unit, especially at the linebacker core with a lot of time under task together. And so no one really got too high or too low because they know the plays are going to be there. Mike, uh, again, it's hard to project a lot into 2023 till we see how some of the freshmen look, what happens in the portal. Uh, but from let's just focus on Marcus Freeman. Do you feel like he evolved enough this year that he'll be an asset that we'll see a coach that's capable of coaching a team maybe into the playoff. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think he's got all the makings of that and it's because he was so willing to go as the year went along and adjust to things there. And right. he's been willing to delegate in certain spots. I, I, I thought this was a big year, especially to whether what he did at the beginning of the season like a first-time head coach at a place like Notre Dame to start seeing all the headlines about how you're the first Notre Dame head coach to start their career 0-3, that would break most people. That absolutely would. That would break most teams, and that would break most coaching staffs. I mean, across the board, outside of Coach Eastand and Al Golden, this is also a young coaching staff, like for everyone there. And so the fact that the, I think, cohesiveness of that coaching staff combined with a locker room that had a lot of guys with winning football, I was really impressed by the medal it took to get from starting the season the way that they did and going on and winning the games in the backstretch of the year that they did. Because that's also like, and I know it's so cliche, and I know it's kind of unfair to compare this to other new coaches because Marcus was there. He was in the building for the 11 months prior to taking over. The buy-in was there. Like people didn't tune out the message. You don't have a conference championship or that stuff for Notre Dame. You don't have smaller goals to play for. And when you've got a team full of guys that have only known double digit win seasons and potential in the college football playoff in November every year, it didn't default from the standard at all. They found a way to overcome that and still go out and perform at a really high level and get better all year long. You watch Drew Pine and them get better all year long. You watch more and more guys on the defense go along. Benjamin Morrison and what he developed into on the defensive side there. More and more of those young players getting reps as the season went along. And I just thought that spoke to 
a coach that was able to effectively communicate his message to the team every day in a way that started and kept sinking in as the season went along. You saw that play out on the field in real time, and it's why they didn't wilt when the things got tough. Mike, you touched on the prospect of potentially adding Wake Forest quarterback Sam Hartman to to Notre Dame, and by the time people listen to this at some point this week, he could end up officially committing to Notre Dame. What what are your thoughts on him, and is he worth the potential fallout in the quarterback room for bringing a grad transfer in like that? Yes. Yes, he is. Sam Hartman is a phenomenal quarterback. I mean, he's the ACC's all-time leader in career touchdown passes with the quarterbacks we know they've had in that conference in an offense that demands as much or more of a quarterback as any you'll see in the country. That man in that long mesh that Wake Forest has been running has been asked to throw out of a phone booth and fit the ball into impossible keyhole windows. If he if he ends up playing for Notre Dame next year, he'll never have been protected the way he's going to be protected. One, schematically, and two. Listen, Wake Forest has had quality offensive linemen, but what they ask them to do is very difficult. And it doesn't make them look good on tape when, yeah, the pocket's closing in because you're asked to Velcro on to dudes. Yeah. And you're asked to create possibilities for the run and pass on almost every play. Sam Hartman in this offense would have freedom. He's got, you know, a strong enough arm to get it in those spaces, a very quick release, and just a smart and savvy player. And I, I think all of those things we saw by the end of the season in 2021 mesh really well with Jack Cohn in those ways, who's a different quarterback. Sam can offer you a little bit more in the design run game, which I know this, you know, this staff certainly wants to involve, wanted to involve with Tyler Buckner. But yeah, I, I absolutely think as far as next steps, you know, it's unfortunate that Tyler was injured and we didn't get to see what happened with his development over the course of a long season. And again, he went out and handled his business in the Gator Bowl and has my undying respect. But in college football now, we're going to see because of the portal year over year an opportunity to add talent at critical positions like this and quarterbacks become one of those places where you can add splash talent. And for Notre Dame, who's always been able to uh, recruit really well, along the lines of scrimmage, along the defensive line of scrimmage. We've even seen on the back end of the defense now, and certainly in the running back and tight end room here, to get a quarterback at the center of that as accomplished as this one, who knows what that can vault you in in year two of this regime and year two for Marcus Freeman. So, yeah, I, I think they knew going into this offseason they were going to have to be players in the portal at that position because, again, you just can't go back in with an unknown at quarterback after injury and then Drew Pine transferring this offseason. Uh, following up on that, if you're Tyler Buckner, do you give any thought to the portal, or do you think this could be the best thing to be able to learn from somebody like Hartman, who has a lot of the same skills, who's really the same size, and uh, you know, you may not play as much as you, even you did in twenty twenty one, but would you stick around if you're Tyler Buckner? I think there's certainly advantages to it. I think like anything else, it would be about what other opportunity do I think is out there? Do I think there's another place? And also, I don't know where Tyler is with his degree either. And that's one of those things. If you're here, you might as well get the paper to go along with it. If you're even close to that. So I don't know where he is as far as that, but um, I, I think there are advantages like that, but at the same time, I can understand in this day and age, if you've got the ability to move and play right away in a spot where you could potentially then give yourself a better chance, getting tape out there for NFL teams, if that's what you desire to do. 
Totally get that. But if he's got the relationship with Tommy Reese in that quarterback room and he says, hey, you know what? I want to stick around. There's no guarantee. And listen, he knows as well as anybody. You can go into the season as the starter and you're one play away from all of a sudden that not being the reality. There's plenty of reasons, I, I think, on both sides of that. So, you know, for me, I, I always don't discount either. And I see kids do it more now, so maybe it's easier than I give credit for. My affinity for Notre Dame was certainly different, but I don't discount. It's hard to just uproot your whole life after a couple of years and go have to learn something completely different and go have to get to know a place that's completely different. That's a very different look at the college experience that these players who have to treat this more like a profession than I think me or my classmates ever had to. That's a different reality that they're all facing. So I don't want to discount that either in the decision-making process, but I'd support whatever Tyler wants to do man he's earned that he's gone out there and fought his ass off for this team and for this program and and i have a lot of respect for what he did this season in some pretty adverse circumstances so none of that could have been easy and uh you know i hope he's back it'd be great especially in the portal era listen we know depth is going to be hard at a lot of positions to have but especially quarterback where you can only get one on the field in most situations and so uh that's not a guarantee and it shouldn't be so you know he should i think like most of these guys, be smart, consider your options. Because as I always say, coaches can coach forever. Players got a four and five year window, six years with the COVID year to try and either live out their dreams of being college football players or give themselves an opportunity to play at the next level, whatever that looks like. Mike, I know before the Gator Bowl, talking to some South Carolina reporters, uh, a few of them are like, I'm not sure what's going to happen in this game, but I'm predicting South Carolina to win because – South Carolina has the better quarterback and oftentimes it comes down to that. And I said, well, Notre Dame is used to sort of playing at a disadvantage when it comes to quarterbacks. I mean, uh, looking at the quarterbacks that Notre Dame faced this year, I, I posed the question on Twitter. Who who do you think is the third best quarterback Notre Dame faced? Caleb Williams, Drake May, or CJ Stroud? What, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on just sort of the quarterback play that Notre Dame has had to play against and sort of the need to sort of get to that level in order to compete for national championships? It's insane when you say it like that. <laughs> I hadn't even, because like, I, I guess the season's so long ago, I forget like, oh yeah, we did play CJ Stroud in them earlier in the season. And right. obviously we got a markedly different CJ Stroud most recently in the semifinal game against Georgia. That was the best of that player that I think we've seen in Ohio State uniform. But yeah, no, it, it, it says a lot. It says a lot about the standard at, you know, one about the misnomer that Notre Dame doesn't play top flight competition or doesn't schedule tough or whatever the, you know, outdated haters are trying to use as a justification <laughs> to bully Notre Notre Dame into a conference like it's idiotic you just read a murderer's row of some future NFL quarterbacks that Notre Dame's gone against and so uh yeah it, it says that the standard is very high right now and that again in the current world of college football it's in theory easier to access players of that caliber than it's ever been because you get so many uh, quarterback rooms that have talent gluts where these guys all of a sudden see the writing on the wall, decide they're going to hop in the portal, and now you've got an opportunity again. And so it's fascinating to watch how this is going to affect team building in college football going forward. But uh, yeah, no, you look out there and see how much that, I mean, again, North Carolina is probably the perfect example. Without Drake May, that is a bottom half of the ACC team. Yeah. Could not stop the run, could not run the football for the vast majority of the season. But you had that guy in the backfield making magic on almost each and every play. And so that is, you know, the value of it all right there. And if you put them in a healthy ecosystem, then look what else might be capable. I, I had I had joked that 
would would Mac Brown have already won a national championship at North Carolina if he'd hired any of the last three Notre Dame defensive coordinators that have have been promoted <laughs> since then? Mike Elko, Clark Lee, or 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 Marcus Freeman? Their their defense is just so freaking bad. I don't know how they can't get that figured out over there. Also wild to consider the run of recent defensive coordinators <laughs> at Notre Dame and what they've gone on to. Clark Lee finally getting Vanderbilt winning SEC games against the year. The turnaround for which I get Elko is only at Notre Dame for one year, but much like Matt LaFleur, I am going to take credit for that anyway <laughs> and consider him part of the Irish coaching tree. And then Marcus taking over for Notre Dame. It is uh it's a room that certainly produced a lot of hits. Absolutely. Um last one from me. When you I get so many questions, big picture questions of people fearful the new college environment's going to knock Notre Dame off the map. And when you spoke with Jack, I wonder what your confidence level is in Notre Dame being able to navigate a smaller transfer portal window than most people and where they sit in the NIL world. If If they can still be if they have enough oomph in other places or if they have enough of a future in the NIL game, well, just kind of your thoughts on Notre Dame being on a level-ish playing field. Well, I mean, I guess level-ish with who, right? Level-ish with the teams that we've been competitive with before, yes. Like, we're not competing with Alabama, Georgia, Texas A&M, Ohio State when it comes to throwing the NIL bag around. I don't know that specifically, but I think based on, you know, what's going on, it's probably safe to say we're not throwing money at people quite like some of those high-profile collectives have been able to. Can Notre Dame continue to be competitive in the tier that it's been where it's a team that is, especially in the expanded playoff, viable every year in that, going to be able to continue to recruit at a really high level, which we saw this year, get bumped up even more, right? In the top 10 recruiting class in a way that wasn't you know, always the norm. Brian Kelly had plenty of good classes recruited in there, but generally it was a, you know, low teens kind of a recruiting situation. Yeah. I think they're capable of that. And then the rest honestly is we'll wait and see like yeah. Notre Dame's it's, it sounds like not totally out of the NIL game, but also like, we're going to wait and see how deep they want to go in this as college football continues to funnel. Like when you've got people in the industry already openly saying power two in the way that they look at the conglomeration of power in college sports between the big 10 and the sec. It kind of lets you know, like, all right, we're veering towards a much more like homogenous model of college football, where it's, you've got to have a certain level of buy-in a certain level of brand equity associated with your name. That's going to bring dollars along that to be a, a player in where college football appears to be heading and Notre Dame still shown, listen, they've still been competitive in this transition, which is a difficult one. Like transition is for most places, but uh, the, I guess uh, unfun answer is maybe like, yeah. I, I think we can be competitive in the ways that we've always been. And then whether or not Notre Dame would ever want to take the plunge into, you know, getting into more dutifully the collective space and having, you know, those kinds of conversations about how they want to attack this, we have, you know, will remain to be seen. Mike, I've been kind of curious. I mean, we, we've seen across the country NIL collectives sort of pop up and have sort of faces of former players or people associated with the school behind them. And obviously Brady Quinn has sort of stepped up in, in with the fund initiative um, with NIL at Notre Dame. Are there conversations? I mean, you talk to a lot more former players than we do. Are there conversations amongst each other? Like, 
how do we help? Do we, are you guys like waiting on Notre Dame to sort of give the green light to figure out ways to do this? I'm curious, like sort of your perspective on how, I mean, it seems like other schools are doing this too. So how, how does Notre Dame and the former Notre Dame players that, that maybe want to help the program figure out a way to do that? Yeah. You know, I, I think that there is, um, some wonder of how, and like you said, Brady taking the reins the way he has, I think has been someone who's going to start that conversation more and more if it's going to light up that way. But um, I think there is a desire certainly to help, right? We all want to see Notre Dame do well, and we all see clearly where college sports and college football are going. And so I think finding a way if Notre Dame's willing to make that a reality is something that more people would be certainly willing to get, uh, be a part of, I think, you know, in general for people leaving college, giving is always an interesting and tough prospect because you're wondering where it's going to go. And I think the advantage of this is, you know, you're not endowing a specific scholarship or for a specific program. You're saying, no, we want this money to go directly to the people who are doing what we used to do. And I think there is something that's inviting about that, the idea of it to a former player of saying, I know what my experience was and I know what was you know different now, what's already different for these players. But if someone had been willing to give me money for actually going out there and doing what I was doing for showing up and, and committing to and giving to the university in that way, then yeah, I, I think that would be something that would be inviting to a lot of people because we know, like we know this firsthand, it is of us. And so wanting to give to someone who is in a similar situation, who's, you know, giving to the university in a way that we all did is definitely something that uh, I think a lot of people would be in on. Well, all right, Mike, that's all we have for you today. We really appreciate you catching up with us, catch Mike and Brandon Newman on the Gojo show. I appreciate uh, and listen to that podcast very pretty regularly. So um, best of luck with that moving forward. And thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. As a reminder, the inside ND sports podcast is presented by dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. Irish fans. It's time to step into the new year in style. If you haven't made the move already, you'll really need to experience a different, a quality sock makes go to deadsoxy.com and enter the code lucky. That's L U C K Y at checkout to receive 25% off on all orders, and that includes sale items. As they continue to grow, Dead Soxy wants to extend a special thank you to the continued support of the Inside ND Sports community. The folks at Dead Soxy are constantly striving to improve their quality, relationships, and customer experiences. You can even interact with the Dead Soxy folks on our Insider Lounge message board. Remember, all socks come with a patented technology with a no-slip guarantee made from bamboo for that premium luxury feel. Just got a box as a gift and couldn't be happier. Remember to enter the promo code LUCKY at checkout for 25% off all orders and Happy New Year from Dead Soxy. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's 
at E. Hansen ND. First one we have is from at Charles W. Wolf. Are there any takeaways from the Gator Bowl win that we can take into 2023? Or is this more of a one-off game with rosters affected by the portal and draft? Well, I, I think there's certainly some things, both positively and negatively, that we learned that will help um, the 2023 team. You know, this was the first game without Michael Mayer, so you got a chance to see other tight ends featured. You also saw a lot of a lot more wide receiver play because Notre Dame only ran 12 personnel maybe 15 times in the game. Um, not a lot. So um, we got to see kind of the wide receivers step up. Um, I think there's some other position groups too. I think from a negative side, maybe um, how much the defensive line needs to evolve a little bit. I thought they played a much better second half. I think Riley Mills is better inside than out. Uh, I think we learned that Jordan Batello deserves a chance to to win a position. Um, and and I think we learned a lot about Tyler Buckner. Um, not definitively, but we learned a lot about his toughness, and we learned a, a lot about maybe a little bit more of an expanded skill set when he had a really good offensive line in front of him, uh, which, which wasn't the case when they played Ohio state and Marshall. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think there's, I would call them more learning points than it is kind of momentum. And this is exactly how things are going to be in 2023. And it informed, I think the coaching staff or confirmed some of the portal needs too. Right. Yeah. I think most of my takeaways are like depth related that certain guys that we didn't get to see in certain positions came through and played well and showed that they're at least on the verge or ready to sort of take that next step next season that Mitchell Evans, I thought played well. Um, Jaden Thomas, I thought was, was really good. Um, Probably the best game of his career and, sort of imagining what he could be like in a more expanded role and used more often. I think we sort of underestimate his impact in the running game and his ability to block, but obviously that's not what people want to measure a wide receiver on. And he was able to make some plays. I mean, he wasn't like lighting the world on fire, but I thought he was reliable um, and played with a, a, a swagger that I don't know that I've seen from him before. So I thought that was kind of neat. Um, Jaden Mickey as a cornerback, I think he had his best game of his young career. Um, so some confidence in him being your third cornerback next season after having some struggles earlier in the, this season. Um, obviously, we're well aware that the running back running back room is is loaded. Um, and Jordan Batello, I think, was the other one. It's like, okay, he can, he can really bring it. Can he put it all together for a full season? I, we'll see. But I think he um, gives the reason to be confident that Notre Dame has some options to rush the passer next season, even though it, it's losing Isaiah Foskey. All right, next question is from Baba Ganoush at P-L-A-C-T underscore I-T-F-D-B. In each of your opinion, which position group is the biggest need or question mark for ND going into 2023? I I don't know that, too, a, a question mark is necessarily a complete negative. It's just an unknown. Right. I think the quarterback position is unknown until Sam Hartman commits, and even then will 
Tyler Buckner stick around after spring football, there's another portal window from May 1st to May 15th. And if he does that, then you have a lot of question marks with your backup quarterback. Um, I think there's still questions about the wide receiver, even though I feel really good about their potential. I feel great about the numbers that you're going to have at wide receiver. Um, I would say still beyond Jordan Patello, who can rush the passer. And I would also say safety depth. Um, Watt um, really played, Xavier played really well at the end of the season. And I could see him being a starter and being pretty good. Ramon Henderson, I need to see more consistency from him. But again, I, I don't know how much they're going to get help from the freshmen this year. So the, the depth piece at safety is going to be interesting to me. Yeah, I, I think if I'm picking one as the biggest, I think defensive line would be the position group that there's got to be a, got a lot of guys. I mean, I think the two certainties you have right now are Howard Cross, the third, and Riley Mills. Um, and even with Riley, it's like, okay, is he defensive tackle for good now? Like, what what is his best position? If Justin Adamalola doesn't come back, who who else do you know for certain what they're going to give you next season? I think their name's looking to potentially bring in a transfer or two, and maybe it's not a frontline guy, it's a depth person, but I think there needs to be probably some more competition there. Um, and can some of the young guys step up? Who are the young guys that step up? I think there's a lot of uncertainty and unknowns about the defensive line going into next season that pushes that group to the top of the biggest need and question mark, even though I agree that the wide, re the wide receivers are sort of like maybe a little bit below that. And I think we, we know who the pieces are, um, but how do they, what, what's their next step look like? Um, and can they be more dynamic with uh, a different quarterback potentially next season? All right. Next question is from at Henry Bede. Uh, we had a couple of questions from Henry Bede. This first one is, will Lorenzo Styles return to Notre Dame in 2023? If so, do you think he'll get a look on defense? He hasn't looked like a natural receiver, and many schools recruited him for defense. I think he will be back. Uh, I think he'll want to get things right. You know, if there was a need for him at Ohio State, maybe he would look at them, but if he can't play at Notre Dame, he's not going to be able to play at Ohio State with the receivers they have. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I I mean, they have better receivers than just about anybody. Um, as far as moving to defense, I think it's a little bit early to pull the plug on Lorenzo. I still think he's a really, really talented guy. I'd like to see what spring looks like. And even then, if you're going to make a position change, do you want to go from being a starter on offense to being a backup on defense, because that's what would happen. He wouldn't be a starter on defense. Who's he going to start ahead of at corner? He's not going to be ahead of Cam Hart or uh, or Benmo, um, and he's not going to be ahead of Watts. You know, maybe Ramon Henderson, but again, not having played safety or defensive back for a couple of years, I just don't see that being a quick transition. Then all of a sudden, he's a senior. And, you know, fighting to be a starter where I think if he gets it together in the spring, he'll be a starter in the fall at wide receiver. So I I, I just think it's too early to think along those lines. Yeah, I, I expect him to be back and I don't expect him to be a defender. And if 
you try to make him the defender, that's an invitation for him to leave, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think this is a bit of an overreaction. I think we've seen him make plays at, as a wide receiver. Um, he certainly didn't do that with enough consistency this past season. Um, and that was the leading returning receiver. Yeah, right. Um, so that is concerning, but I think you just have to get that focus back with him, that confidence back with him and get him sort of through the lumps that he took this season and back on track rather than sort of just scrapping his wide receiver future to put him on defense. Uh, the second the second question we have from at Henry Bede is, if Tosh Baker is one of the five best offensive linemen for Notre Dame in 2023, would he play guard or would one of the current tackles move? Uh, especially after hearing Mike Golick Jr. talk, I don't think there's any way you would move a guy that's going to be a top 10 draft pick as a tackle. Um, and I think both of those tackles have that kind of potential. Um, so I, I would think that Baker would be the one to stick inside. If he were the better, if he were a better tackle than either of those guys, he would be playing now. Um, and, and one of them would be playing guard. So, um, I think he's, I think he would have to play guard and I think he's in the mix. I, I think Michael Carmody is too. And then the other, other three are all guards. Christophic, who's a former tackle, uh, Billy Shrouth, who's always been a guard and, and Rocco, who's always Spindler, who's always been a guard. Yeah. I, I know Josh, Josh Lug is, I think like just a shade under six, seven Tosh Baker is a legit six, eight. Yeah. Um, I know that's not a huge difference, but it does seem a bit nuts to me if to, for to have a six foot eight guard. Um, and Tasha, I don't think plays very with a low center of gravity either. So I think that him playing guard at that height would be a bit difficult. Um, so it's it's hard for me to imagine him being a better guard than those he'd be competing with. So I mean, this is a hypothetical that I have I'm having trouble uh sort of accepting that he would be one of the five best offensive linemen because I don't know that he could be a better tackle than the, the current tackles either, but if we're taking this on on face value, this hypothetical, there there is a world that Blake Fisher could be a great guard. I'm not saying it's a likely one, but if if in this hypothetical, Tosh Baker can prove to be a better tackle um, than Blake Fisher, then I guess that's the decision you have to make. If that's if that's your best five, um, I don't think Harry Heastan would be afraid to make that decision if he felt that way. Um, but I'm not sure it's a very likely one either. All right. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Are you concerned about the level of talent on the defensive side of the ball, particularly the upperclassmen? Everyone loved Mike Elston, but was he really a good recruiter? Which defensive players that are currently in the portal would you like to see Notre Dame go after? Um, I think there's plenty of talent at linebacker. Uh, I think if there's some depth solutions from the portal, I would be, I think the talent at safety is good. I really like the way the cornerback talent is trending um, with the two freshmen from this year and, and the two freshmen coming in and Micah Bell and Christian Gray. Um, defensive line, I have my questions about, and I'm not sure if it's talent or the developmental model. I, I really need to see a lot this spring to make me feel better about the defensive line. As far as guys coming in from the portal, um, I would like to see Notre Dame take a run at Anthony Lucas from Texas A&M, who Notre Dame was a finalist for. He's out of 
I think would be better inside, but he's he could play that field end, and that would allow you to keep Riley Mills inside, and it would give you, I think, a pretty dynamic player out there on that edge. Um, the Harper kid that's coming for that's on a visit to Notre Dame. Uh, you know, again, I think that's a good depth piece. Maybe there's better ones out there. I know um, Notre Dame was looking at the Catalan kid from Arkansas, but he hasn't visited. Um, and I, I'd like to see them maybe take a run at a true edge player. I know Wake Forest has a um, defensive end. Now, I don't, th I think this is one they couldn't get in. I saw Jordan Birch. From South Carolina, the 6'6", 275, former five-star prospect is in there. I think he's in that window where it's really difficult with the transfer credits. And I don't know that he'd have an interest in Notre Dame, but man, that would be a big pickup on the edge for Notre Dame. Yeah, um, a, a lot of questions here. So I'll go back to the, the talent concern first. Um, I'm at, like... I, I think we're in agreement with the there's no I don't I think the talent is fine at linebacker and corner. Um I would say even defensive tackles borderline there because I think you're too you, I mean you probably have your two starters coming back and I think Howard Cross and Riley Mills can be good at those positions. Now your depth there is questionable. Um but it shouldn't be. I mean Rubio ought to I mean Rubio was a high pedigree guy, and so was Tyson Ford. I mean, I would expect those guys to make a surge this spring and if it doesn't yeah, and, happen and they, yeah and they can we i mean we, we i mean we we don't know if it will or won't happen yeah. I think it's too early to say that um the the two spots that i have the talent concerns at are the defensive end and safety spots um is is the is the duo of xavier watts and ramon henderson enough um i i probably not and that's not why if you have an injury not, that's why Notre Dame's looking at safety portal options um, and, and the same with defensive ends, uh, the field end, I mean, as, as big of a need, the Viper end is the field end, I think is probably just as big. I mean, unless you, you feel like you can still play Riley Mills out there. Um, but then I think that makes your defensive tackle need <laughs> big. So I think it depends on how you want to split it there. Um, so I think that's why we're seeing Notre Dame consider options at those positions. Um, my, my portal wish list would include Anthony Lucas, like you mentioned from Texas A&M. Um, some guys you didn't mention Fresno state safety, Evan Williams. Uh, he recently entered oh, yeah, the portal. I, him. I think, I think it seems likely that he ends up at Oregon where I believe his brother is a player. Um, but I think that would be someone that Notre Dame would be He's interested in. Tariq Bracey, apparently. Um, Arkansas defensive end Jordan Dominic, I think is a, is another defensive end option that that would be interesting to me. That would be somewhat realistic. I don't know that it is like really realistic, but that would be a name. I'm I'm trying to come up with names that wouldn't be like total like uh, wish list wish list guy. Like that, that, there's no. I mean, you can put them on the list, but it's not it's not going to ever possibly happen. Um, and then the other one would be Syracuse cornerback Deuce Chestnut. He's another underclassman, which would make it difficult, I believe. Uh, Evan Williams and Jordan Dominic, I believe, are both graduate transfers. Um, so that that could get in the way there. And cornerback isn't the biggest need you have there, but I think if you bring in someone like him, that would be an, can he, an interesting Can he play comment. nickel? I think so, yes. Okay. Um, and I think um, Thomas Harper, who is visiting from Oklahoma State, he could also play nickel. He played a lot of nickel 
um, as like a third. The Oklahoma State's base defense has three three safeties, um, so he he oftentimes when he was playing was playing sort of over the slot. So I I, I don't know that he's as dynamic as someone like Tariq Bracy is, but um, I think Notre Dame's leading slot or Nickelback's options are Ramon Henderson, who you'd move down from safety anyways, yeah. or or potentially Jaden Mickey continuing to expand on his role there. So. Um, those would be guys on my portal wish list. Um, the one question you didn't address was the everyone loved Mike Elston. Was he really a good recruiter? And I would say, yes, he was. I think he certainly had some misses, which everyone does. I think, uh, um, he also got better as a recruiter. I thought he had some really bad classes there early on. And when he was getting moved back and forth between defensive line and linebacker, um, but I mean, Isaiah Foskey, Jason Adamo, the two biggest losses on your defense this offseason are, are guys that Mike Elston recruited. Keon Keeley committed when Mike Elston was on staff. So did Brendan Vernon. Um, he he, he uh, got Dalen Hayes. He got Adeo Gandeji. He got um, the, Colin the, the, Green. Keith Gilmore was involved with those guys too. So I, I wouldn't right. give Mike Elston total credit yeah, for that. Um, Keith was involved. But uh, I mean, Stefan Tuitt. Yeah, yeah. If you go back farther, there, um, I think he also recruited Jalen Smith when yep. it was kind of a territorial thing. He had Indiana, so, so uh, but he yeah. did have whiffs. But you know, the thing was, he moved on from them quickly. Everyone and does. I mean, you can't. Is he developed guys. He could develop three stars, not all of them, but he could. He was very good at player development. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think of all the quarterbacks who have have whiffed on, and you only sign one every year. Like a defensive line, where you're signing three or four guys at least every year, you're gonna have some misses. Um, so, I mean, like that would be like saying Jeff Quinn wasn't a good recruiter because Tosh Baker and Michael Carbony haven't been starters. Like he has, there's plenty of talented players on this offensive line that Jeff Quinn deserves to get credit for as a recruiter. Um, but you don't, you don't just sort of throw it out because he had some misses too. So, um, I do think Mike Elston was a good recruiter. Um, and Notre Dame has benefited from that and will still be benefiting from that in certain ways. I think it's like, you can't blame Mike Elston for Jacob Lacey no longer being at Notre Dame, unless you blame him for no longer being at Notre Dame. And that's part of the reason Jacob Lacey's not here anymore. So certainly some guys like Nano Osafo Mensa and Alexander Ehrensberger haven't sort of risen to the level that you hope they would eventually get to, but, um, that's, that's going to happen across the defensive line too. All right. Our next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib43. Jalen Sneed came off the edge a few times as a defensive end against South Carolina. Would you rather see him move to defensive end opposite the Viper, or do you think another player might be better suited to play that end position? I would prefer Maris Leofau as he hasn't been very good as a read-slash-react linebacker. Well, Chris, I, I think that's an interesting question. The body type, I, I don't think that, you know, Jalen Snee came in at 198 pounds. He's up to 220. He'd like to get to 225, and he really would like to play linebacker. In high school at Hilton Head Island High School, he did play a lot of that defensive end. The field end at Notre Dame, it kind of profiles as a 260, 270-pound player. So it's they're, they tend to be larger than the, the Vipers. I'm not sure that that's a fit for him. And I also think they would be wasting a skill set. It'd be kind of like taking one of the best shortstops and putting them at first base. He could play first base and be a good first baseman, but you 
you would lose that skill set because I think he has potentially, he certainly has the traits of Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, and I think that's what Notre Dame believes that he can grow into, and he would be so valuable in that role because those guys don't come around all the time. The great part about that is you could still, in some blitzing situations or or in some um, nickel or dime packages, line him up on the edge and let him go after quarterbacks there, or you could blitz him up the middle. So there's a lot of things you could do with him. So so from a standpoint of, yeah, taking advantage of his pass rush ability, I think that's really astute on your part, but I think there's a better way to do that. Yeah, I, I my understanding of, of the field and position is someone that needs to sort of be able to control the edge um, and, and be strong against the run in addition to obviously being a good pass rusher too. But I think those, those things are important that I, I don't know that you could ask Jalen Sneed to do as a defensive end, at least not without him gaining another 50 pounds or so. Uh, he, I think in terms of who will, who ends up being there, I mean, that's something that we mentioned earlier as a potential portal option. Uh, Nana Asafo Mensa is someone that's been there as a reserve that will get more opportunity there. I think Aiden Gobira eventually could get there. Um, I just I, I'm not sure that you're going to see linebackers sort of be converted to that position unless not without some sort of retooling and rethinking of the the scheme that Al Golden wants to use. Um, I mean, we're talking about the same spot that Riley Mills has played. And so, like, it seems kind of funny to think of like Jalen Sneed and Riley Mills playing the same position. I, th- those guys do not look alike at all. I mean, maybe Maris Leofow could become that. I mean, I, I don't know, like. Uh, it seems kind of bad, but like, I don't, I don't think Maris comes off blocks very well, but maybe he can like, like hold the edge well at that position. So maybe that would be something he could do, but I still think that would be quite the, quite the ask for him to do. Um, I, I am interested in them trying to find better ways to get Maris Leofow involved and it might not be as a inside linebacker moving forward, but, um, I think, I think those are interesting questions and something that Notre Dame has to sort of figure out and sort of best leveraging its talent moving forward. Next question we have is from Ryan Urquhart, who I still need to double back with and get the right pronunciation of his last name. But the Twitter handle is Urquhart, C-R-N-A, if slash when Sam Hartman commits, and now that is a when, uh, this will be the most dynamic offense since when? 2015, 2005 slash six. I could see this offense being the most prolific of this century given the talent in the backfield O-line and wide receivers with Hartman behind center. I'm going to start with 2015 just because I think there's a lot of talent at tight end and wide receiver. I just don't know how mature, how, how ripe that talent is. Um, the 2015 team had Will Fuller who could take a top off of any defense right, and put every defensive coordinator kind of into a uh, pickle where he had to say, okay, how am I going to, deal with Will Fuller and then leave the run open and leave other receivers open? Or am I going to try to man him up or, or play zone? And the funniest one was Pittsburgh when Pat Narduzzi was bound to determine to, to cover him one-on-one. And I think Will Fuller could have had 18 touchdowns if he had wanted to that day. Um, it, it potentially, I mean, you could go further back to the, some of the Charlie Weiss teams. And 
I, I don't know that it'd go all the way back to 2005, 2006. Even the eight and nine teams with Clawson, they weren't better teams, but they were incredible offenses with Golden Tate and Kyle Rudolph and uh, Michael Floyd. I mean, those are some pretty skilled offensive players. I think these offensive lines are better, um, but I, I think the potential is there to dial back into the earlier 2000s but right now i would i would say since 2015 yeah it notre dame has to have that receiver like will fuller to be more dynamic than that 2015 offense um so i I can't go past that yet and we're gonna have to see that proven by the up-and-coming wide receivers for notre dame um certainly that is within reach i think because of what sam Hartman brings to the offense um, but obviously they have to go out and do it and we'll see how that uh, pans out. But I think there's a lot to be excited about with Sam Hartman coming to Notre Dame. Next question is from at Mr. Joe Seiler. Do you believe the Irish will successfully admit and win the recruitment of an undergrad transfer this year? I think they'll, they'll be able to admit them whether they pick Notre Dame. I'm not sure because you know, C.J. Williams and uh, Lucas are in play, and they are one semester removed from high school or or two if they were early enrollees. So they are basically freshmen, I think, especially since Notre Dame had cleared them before, as long as there's not a stickiness with uh, Anthony Lucas's um, suspension at Texas A&M. I think they can get them through, but I'm not sure that they're going to pick Notre Dame. Um, I think there's some where they're going to have the door closed on them. If they're guys that just finished their junior year, I think that's a really tough needle to thread. Um, but um, that's my take. How about yeah, you, Yeah, I mean, Notre Dame's going to try. I mean, I can't predict whether it'll work <laughs> um, because it's twofold. It's like, they have to get, like you mentioned, they have to get into the school and get through admissions, and they also have to want to do that. Um, so I think Notre Dame has sort of trended more towards the grad transfers in terms of like targeting guys because it's easier. Um, and also, as Marcus Freeman has said, we want guys to come in from the transfer portal that can play right away. Um, and so you're obviously those would those would send, tend to be graduate transfers, not that they can't be underclassmen. Um, but I think you're, you're more certain about what a grad transfer can do and what they will do. But yeah, they're, I mean, they're still going. At, I mean, as we're recording this podcast on Thursday, Andrell Anthony, a, a sophomore wide receiver from Michigan, um, who's from uh, East Lansing originally, uh, oddly enough, uh, he reported a, an offer from Notre Dame. And so that's someone that Notre Dame was familiar with in his recruitment. He came down to campus a, a few times. And so can they make that work? I don't know. Will I mean, obviously, like like we said, will he want to come to Notre Dame too? Obviously, that's to be determined. So um, I would I, – I'm going to lean towards yes in terms of like making a, a, a formal prediction um, just because I think they're, they're going to be – they're exploring enough of those options to put themselves in a position to do that, and we'll see if it, it works out in their favor. Next question is from at Drew – Brennan 77 Michigan was not penalized one bit for having a God awful slash beyond easy schedule in 2022 that included eight home games. 
Their season came down to one game, the last of the year at Ohio State. They won, and voters put them number two. Can Notre Dame learn from this around scheduling moving forward? No. Um, I, I think uh, Michigan would have maybe had a tough dilemma had they lost Ohio State. Then there might have been some debate about who the number four team was, especially had Clemson finished out uh, winning, which they didn't. But the thing that Michigan did was when they did play the week schedule, they, you know, they schnockered all those teams <laughs> except for Illinois, which was a white knuckler. Um, but I mean, even Penn State, who's a legit top 10 team, it beat them 41 to 17. So, you know, they took care of business. Had they had, you know, a lot of close victories, then I think the committee would have taken that into uh, consideration. And as far as like scheduling out, I mean, you're going to, Notre Dame always had to have a hard enough schedule that 12 equaled 13, you know, that you had 12 tough enough games that they weren't going to hold the 13th game, the 13th data point, they call it against you. Now, when they go to 12 team playoff, um, could Notre Dame soften the schedule a little bit? Maybe, um, but they're Maybe. scheduled out. I mean, they don't have a lot of wiggle room until somewhere in the 2030s. So I, I'm not sure how much, you know, they're going to change their scheduling philosophy. I think it's going to be Jack Swarbrick's successor that has to a answer that question. Yeah, and I mean, Notre Dame – I agree that it, it could probably get in with the 12 team playoff. I mean, every year, if it's undefeated, I think regardless of its schedule yeah. and maybe even a one loss. And I mean, if your schedule is really bad with one loss, maybe you don't get in, but well, you're, you're always going to, I mean, yeah, you're always going to have USC on the schedule. And I mean, we know what the upcoming schedules look like. A&M comes up in 2024 and 25. If Alabama coming up, uh, you know, but, gonna, I, but you don't just want to get in as well was my other point you want to get yeah. that fifth seed and get get a home game i mean you don't have to be the fifth seed you could be fifth sixth or seventh or eighth um so you'll need you'll need good wins on your schedule to do that um so i think i think i think notre dame could lighten up like does it really need to have like this season and next season like ohio state clemson and uh, USC on the schedule is probably not wise, I guess I, I would say moving forward. Um, it's not, it's not the best, but I also like when, you don't know that those teams were going to be that when those, I mean, when the Clemson, when Notre Dame joined the ACC, I don't know that we thought for sure that Clemson was going to be this for this long. Um, so well, and USC's not been the juggernaut with, uh, you know, all the different coaching changes there. Right. Um, but obviously that's been locked into the schedule forever. Um, and, but obviously you go through the ups and downs of what those programs are like. Um, so I, I think, and also I think it's harder when, I mean, Notre Dame has, a, has more games to fill um, and it's going to be harder for Notre Dame to bring it on teams and costly. If you just bring in teams that are only going to come here, you got to pay those teams to do that. If you're not going to return the favor and go play an away game. So if you, you don't want to schedule, away games against Western Michigan and stuff like that, you better be prepared to pay them to come here. Um, so then how do you replace that revenue uh, by bringing in the big teams to Notre Dame stadium 
um, and selling out those games. And, and and obviously if you get to the playoff then you get some revenue too, but um, I, I don't think it'll drastic Notre Dame's like conference or not conference Notre Dame scheduling will drastically change, but I do think it can get away with, with not having to make itself stand out as one of the toughest schedules in the country. Next question is from at Patrick Shields zero best way to travel to South Bend for a Notre Dame home game. If flying in from California airports, places to stay best way to experience ND. Why don't you take that one and I'll fill in the blanks if there are any. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're probably the right people to ask because we don't, we don't do that. Um, I travel away from Notre Dame, not to Notre Dame. So uh, I want to make a request to our listeners to send their tips to at Patrick Shields zero on Twitter. Um, Some, some things that came to mind, I I would give yourself extra time. I would try to get into town on Thursday if that were possible, um, given your schedule. Um, Obviously if, if not, that's not the end of the world, but I think giving yourself plenty of time. And I think that also can change your options too. Um, I think hotels here are pretty expensive, but you can stay out of town, whether it's somewhere like Michigan city or Niles or Elkhart. Um, but then you'll need a rental car. The other, the other option, if you get a local hotel or Airbnb, then you can take the train from Chicago. I mean, you're probably going to have to fly through Chicago. Um, now you could do a connection connecting flight that flies into South Bend, um, if you want to. Um, but obviously the, the options usually, usually are a bit more limited there. Um, so consider consider those things. I don't have I don't have a lot of experience doing that coming to Notre Dame. Like I've taken the train from South Bend to Chicago and vice versa. Um and but those it does take time. It's not it's not necessarily faster, but it's more convenient. You can just sit there and you don't have to worry about being the one doing it. And I also I would it, it's important to mention, especially someone from California, your decision should probably be reflective of the time of year. I try to avoid the 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 drive between South Bend and Chicago in November because of the snow possibility. So if if you're gonna come to a game in November, maybe try to fly into South Bend rather to rather than flying into Chicago. And and it's easier to find your luggage because there's only two carousels at the airport <laughs> at the South Bend International Airport. And, and if you're flying out of South Bend, it's the easiest airport to fly out of. <laughs> you're gonna wait the least you've ever waited to get onto a plane <laughs> um and not have to deal with traffic. It, it's it's very convenient. Obviously it's a little bit more hectic uh the day after a game and stuff like that, but it's still not um nothing crazy. So I, I uh I'm a big proponent of of using the South Bend airport whenever possible. And if you're lucky, um, some guy will show up with a boom box and dance with you. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe Chad Bowden will get, get over there and uh, help you out. Uh, last question we have is from Nathan Reynolds at Enforcers2117. Um, and it was a two-parter. Since anyone can wear any number and you don't dress more than 100 players, then why doesn't each player pick a number 0 through 99? Then you don't have to worry about a flag for having two guys on the field with the same number and you can put their last names on the back to help help with NIL. And the second part was please keep doing the Monday night live shows. There's always something to talk about with Notre Dame, whether it's recruiting or transfer portal. If all else fails, then you, we can have a therapy session for Tyler about his obsession with Taylor Swift. Okay. See, I, I was like lukewarm to that question until it got to the last line. <laughs> now it's the best question ever. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure that Notre Dame dresses fewer than a hundred players at at home games, but but that might be right. But why don't they want them? I mean, there's the NCAA suggests 
numbers and the offensive linemen pretty much stick to the range uh, for offensive line numbers um, because like Notre Dame had that number one jersey thing the one year that you know, Brian Kelly was going to give it to the player of the game and Quentin Nelson won it and you know he still wore 56 he didn't wear the one uh, out there and the thing is kids are obsessed with numbers they yes. have special numbers that they want because they're meaningful from their high school or for childhood or for sentimental other really interesting reasons so many kids want the single digits right. what do they call it drip um, uh yeah drip yeah yeah you sound yeah. like marcus freeman right it's it's the drip <laughs> so you're, it's, it's not the, it's not the drip i think the drip is different than having drip <laughs> it's it, it's having drip yeah it sounds like you got a runny nose but it's it's being fashionable i, I mean when i've talked to kids you know they they say you know i look good in the single digit you know that's important to me right. i look good in the single digit so yeah players like to have certain numbers i think they tend to like align with what if they make it to the nfl there are number restrictions once you get to the NFL. You can only wear certain numbers at certain positions. So if you want, I mean, if I wanted to be an offensive lineman my whole career and said, no, I'm insistent on having number 11. If I got to the NFL, I wouldn't be able to have number 11 anymore. And I think there is some, sometimes there's even superstition with it. Like this is the number I've always wore. I really want to continue wearing that. Um, and so there's a lot of things that go into that. So if, if Notre Dame tried to like pigeonhole guys into wearing certain numbers just so they didn't have to worry about a penalty that happens once a year, maybe, um, I, I think uh, you wouldn't have to worry about that. I, Notre, I mean, teams tend to plan accordingly. Like um, there was a time this season where Deion Colsey was wearing a different number because he was going to be on the field at the same time as Brandon someone, Joseph. Brandon Joseph. Um, or no, More that would have been. Yeah, because uh, he's 16 normally. Right, correct. So, uh, yeah, and so then he wore a different number on the on the kickoff return team or um, whatever it may have been. So um, there are ways to avoid the potential problem. But then some, you come into the issue where sometimes maybe it's a it's a substitute that's running out there late and they're just like, oh, crap, I'm wearing the same number and I didn't change jerseys or whatever. So, Well, um, it almost bit Notre Dame in the 2012 season because right. they had two number twos on the field for a pit missed field goal. Yep. And the refs did catch it. And they got away with it. That's what someone said during the game. Like, during the Gator Bowl, I was like, how do you catch that? And I was, I was like, well, I mean, on the punt, uh, it was like, I think it was a punt team thing. And I was like, well, they're all right there in front of you for that back uh, official to see them all. So, um, I, I mean, you, when you're going through and counting them, then you always, wait a minute, I thought there was already a six over here. Um, so, I think that's how that gets caught. So, um, I, I'll, I'll mention one more thing because the Gator Bowl and numbers brought back memories Lewis Nix, at one point, he didn't start with this. I think he was 67, and he ended up with zero. But in the middle, he was nine um, because he wanted to honor Kyle Rudolph. He and Kyle Rudolph got to be really close, a tight end and Lewis Nix. And oh, with the Gator Bowl being down in Jacksonville, I missed Lewis and him being around so much. I mean, we would have had him on the podcast. Uh, for sure yeah that been fun uh, it's hard for me to talk about but yeah but well i know that uh, i don't know if this is where you're going but famously uh our former photographer at the south Bend tribune robert franklin was uh 
was asked to get photos of Lewis Nix at a practice. Um, and he came back with photos of Robbie Toma because it was were also both, number nine. They were both yeah, wearing the that number particular nine. day. We wished everybody had had their own individual numbers. <laughs> so that'll happen sometimes. And even sometimes at practice, they'll have like a random practice where everyone gets to wear, they do like a Jersey swap. So people aren't even wearing the right numbers. So then, then you're really tested to figure out if you can identify who guys are um, while they're wearing a helmet and wearing the wrong number, which could be quite the, uh, quite the obstacle. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone you know who's in the transfer portal. We want to get to 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023, and we love to read the reviews. Here are a couple new ones we saw on Apple Podcasts from JMD 2017, Eric Hansen and Tyler James are two of the best sports analysts in the business and do a great job sharing insightful observations and balanced opinions on Notre Dame sports, along with the occasional side commentary on the St. Louis Cardinals from Eric. <laughs> <laughs> and then MJS93 says, great balanced and informative podcast, good selection of guests that add to each episode. Um, so thank you to JMD and MJS for those reviews um, and special shout out to Eric for doing almost all the booking of the guests. So he's, he gets the, the, he gets the credit on that um, and the stress that, that comes with being the, the uh, guest booker. Um, mm -hmm. I just do all the technical uh, podcast editing things. We will be back next week with another podcast and maybe even before then um, we'll see uh, how, how things develop. But I, I think uh, with the way things worked out this week, we ended up putting an extra podcast out on Thursday with the Sam Hartman nudes. Um, and this this podcast that you're listening to now was recorded Thursday as well with Mike Golick Jr. Um, but until our next podcast, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. Mm -hmm.